So we're going to talk about the Spirit's communal gifts, okay? And I have a pretty brief uh, sermon plan, so we'll sort of see uh, where that goes and then take some time to hear some responses and some questions. Uh, spiritual gifts are, uh, you know, pretty pretty tricky because we've got basically four or five passages that talk directly of these spiritual gifts, all right? And that's separate and apart from the idea of manifestations of the Spirit, although certainly the ideas kind of overlap, all right? We've got about four passages um, besides 1 Corinthians, which is kind of like the sole passage on spiritual gifts. So I'm going to give those to you, let you go and kind of think through those uh, maybe next week, or if you want to read them now, whatever, you get a little bored, that's fine. Uh, it's always better to read the Bible probably than listen to me anyway. So Romans 12, okay? Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, and Hebrews 2. Okay, that's it. Writers, man. I'm actually pretty used to none of my students in my classes taking notes. They just record everything. I'm like, there's no way you're going back and going to listen to that recording. There's just no way. But they'll just record and then get on their laptop and do other things. I'm like, that's not effective method taking. Okay. Uh, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, Hebrews uh, 2. And then, of course, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, which is where we get most of our uh, misunderstanding of the spiritual gifts. All right? So you can read back through those. And, uh, and I'm just going to kind of give a few ideas, really two major points, and then, uh, and then move forward. Okay? You need them again? You guys turn around asking people, really? That? Man. Wow. Skills of listening. You know, that's just kidding. Romans 12. Ephesians 4. 1 Peter 4, and Hebrews 2, all right? And then, like I said, kind of the tag on to that is 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. So, number one is these lists were never meant to be exhaustive, okay? Meaning that here are the biblical authors, Paul in particular, listing out all of the possible spiritual gifts that we can have. And we ought to just take those lists and, you know, try to kind of isolate them as complete and exhaustive lists. In fact, I think that has done a huge disservice for us, not only in the fact that some of the language hasn't really crossed over very well to us, so some of the gifts don't even seem like they're pertinent or applicable in our day and age, uh, but also because it limits the Spirit's activities to what seems like a random spackling of different, like, kind of random tasks. All right. Unlike the fruit of the spirit list, which is a pretty wide variety of behaviors, ethics that we live by uh, in accordance with God's character, the spirit lists just seem kind of random and haphazard. And so I think that's one of the most important, uh, I think, discoveries that I've, I've made about the spiritual gifts is that those lists that we have, the tiny lists that we have, are not by any means exhaustive, okay? Meaning that that's all that the Spirit will do in terms of uh, His activity uh, in us, okay? So that's first and foremost. Number two, okay? And this isn't actually number two, this is sort of like a sub-point. One of the reasons why this, these lists aren't really exhaustive is because when Paul, particularly in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, is talking about spiritual gifts, he's not instructing us on how to think about gifts, all right? He's not giving a financial seminar on gifts for two hours and has like, you know, fill in the blank answers and things like that. 
he's actually correcting really specific misuse of the gifts in the Corinthian church. And so if we start with a letter that was really kind of a challenge and try to pull out from that teaching, we're going to get in trouble. In the same way that if I was trying to teach basic friendship skills, I wouldn't, you know, pull a letter from a couple who just broke up with each other, right? And all the things they say back and forth, which, I mean, if you're breaking up by letter form, I don't, that's very uncommon. But let me take that in today's language. I'm not taking a text, okay, of your, you know, back and forth breakup scenario and then going to teach a sermon on, you know, an exhaustive understanding of how to have a good friendship. So we can't take particularly 1 Corinthians 12 and expect that Paul's teaching everything there needs to, you know, we need to know about the spiritual gifts because he's really not. He's correcting very specific uh, misunderstandings of the spiritual gifts from 1 Corinthians, all right? And number two, and this is probably even more important, part of the reason we can't take these lists uh, as exhaustive is because the really only qualification of a spiritual gift is that it builds up the community of God. And the Spirit is going to adapt in culture and in day and age in specific kinds of churches to ultimately accomplish his mission of bringing people together in community. And in fact, as Leslie talked about last week, the whole idea of bringing people together in unity is about bringing diverse people into a place where their diversity is respected, appreciated, and everyone can still get along. This isn't uniformity. This isn't trying to make everybody the same because that's just not how God works. God is a very diverse God. He's created a very diverse earth with a lot of different perspectives and people. And the church should be absolutely a reflection of that diversity, as Leslie talked about. So we can't possibly think of these lists as the only way the Spirit, you know, builds community. Because then we're really limited by a few things. And we ought to just, like, stop doing anything but prophesying or speaking in tongues, all the things we actually don't do. Um, and then just hope that we're going to have community as a result of that somehow, some, some way, okay? So it's very important that when you look at Paul's instruction, okay, in his specific instruction, which was challenging and chastising the way the Corinthian church had thought about gifts, it was that they were failing to see that the only real qualification for these spiritual gifts was that they were building up the community. That's it. And their use of gifts was doing the exact opposite thing, was dividing them along theological lines or along preference lines. They were just being divided by their understanding and practicing of these spiritual gifts. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, or 12 through 14, which is where we get the, uh, the whole idea of love, you know, and love is all of these certain things comes as a result of talking about what the spiritual gifts will accomplish in a community. Am I kind of going up and down and echoing and all kinds of things or no? Just me? I just feel that way? Well, then I can handle that because this is me. You guys feel good, right? Can you re-explain the love thing? <laughs> no, I told you I didn't know what I was talking about. So that's, no, just kidding. I'm, I'm just playing. You're like, whatever. Um, the whole 1 Corinthians 12 where we get our wonderful, beautiful, one of the most probably important definitions of love we get comes in the conversation about talking about the spiritual gifts, practicing those gifts in a community. 
and that love comes out of those, those spiritual gifts being employed in the community of God. So you can't divorce those two passages, although we do all the time. Well, that leads us to this other problem. It's this Myers-Briggs you know, view of the world. What Harry Potter uh, school you come from, or what j- house. Do I look like someone who likes Harry Potter? Someone said no. Um, what Jedi, you know, you, that's my normal joke. What Jedi do you want to be? Or I don't know, whatever you can think of. We have this Myers-Briggs view of the world. And if you don't know Myers-Briggs, it's sort of like the folks who popularize these very quick, easy personality tests. And we are obsessed with personality tests. We want to know everything that we can know about how great we are, okay? Um, or how bad we are and how to justify how bad we are, you know? Um, whatever it is. Well, that has totally ruined our understanding of the spiritual gifts. Because the spiritual gifts are not a list of your strengths that God gave you naturally or experiences you've had or personality traits. And if you get and type in spiritual gifts on Google, you're going to find a million spiritual gifts inventory. Or you're going to find your spiritual gift that, you know, you were specifically given by God to build up the body. But the problem is so many of those gift tests really aren't about the spirit accomplishing things only the spirit can. It's simply another way of looking at my strengths as being an asset to the church. And are your strengths an asset to the church? Sure. But did Paul also say that God's grace, charis, charismata, charismatic, is most manifest in his weakness? Yeah, he did. And so if that's true, then it, it to me, follows that, that God's strength is at its most obvious, most, you know, at its pinnacle when he's actually working through our weakness to benefit the community. And it's not through our strength or our personality or even our experiences or arguably even through the fruits gentleness, faithfulness, kindness that, uh, that he's accomplishing in our life. I mean, are those gifts in the kind of a larger sense? Sure. But in, in, I think, a more narrow sense, the spiritual gifts are the ones that the Spirit does inside of us for no reason other than the Spirit has mission to accomplish, and he's going to accomplish it in the community according to his will and mission and has nothing to do with your strength and ability. And that's going to manifest God's presence and glory the best because, you know, God likes to work through the weak and the shameful things and the things that aren't to, to show the things that are that, hey, you're really pretty much nothing. Man's wisdom is nothing compared to God's foolishness, as Paul talks about in Corinthians. So uh, that's an important idea, and it's one that we've really kind of got to get over. One of the specific things that Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians was this lack of discernment the Corinthian church was experiencing. People would just get up and say stuff and say it came from God. And no one would challenge it because they were so amazed that they were being given a message directly from God. Uh, and, and not only is there a lesson there about leadership and authority and being able to test that, which I think for the most part millennials are good at doing, maybe not so much church people always, but millennials are, but is understanding that, that God, when he speaks, speaks for the benefit of the community, not through one person for everyone, but to everyone, and that should be discerned through the body of God. Not so much in a democracy type thing, although there's nothing wrong with democracy, obviously. 
But that when the Spirit speaks, he wants people to be on board, and he wants to draw attention to uh, Christ, to God, and not to some individual who's able to do these miraculous and wonderful things. In fact, if there's a a sort of a a true uh, statement about people who did miracles in the New Testament is that often they weren't able to do miracles on themselves. It was for the benefit of other people. And so that miracles would never be a sign of someone's authenticity. It's, it's what, you know, Paul says or what Jesus says about uh, uh, a prophet isn't honored in his own hometown. Uh, it's sort of the same idea that the, the benefit is for others. It's not for his own sake. This is like my grandpa not wanting me to work on his car because he thinks I'm going to mess it up. So instead he takes it to guys who mess it up. Uh I got to work on other people's cars. I can't work on my own grandpa's car. <sighs> yeah. There's an example in there somewhere, an analogy. I might need to connect it for you, but the point is that when you can work miracles, which I'm not saying my car mechanic ability is a miracle, although it's a miracle how many of you, never mind. Um, so, Community is always the focus, never the individual. And that brings me into the, sort of this final, final point. So the first point is this, the, these lists are not exhaustive. Why are they not exhaustive? Because Paul is directly instructing the, the Corinthian church. Uh, and because it can't possibly be exhaustive because the whole idea is that it's about building up the community. And if it's building up the community, the Spirit's going to use a variety of gifts. And there are, a, uh, I was going to say a million, but it's probably too high a number, hundreds of gifts at the Spirit's disposal that he can give to us. And, uh, and I believe that. And so this idea of coming down to these you know, real, real specific lists, I'm not so sure is a great idea. All right, so let's talk a little bit about it, charismata or charismatics. The, the idea of charismatic in the, the Greek or the New Testament is just charis, which just means an undeserved great, uh, gift from God. I think that's on my head. Okay, we're good. We're kind of high. <laughs> Is that upside down? No, it is upside down. Why didn't you guys tell me, man? I don't want to be up here looking all bad, you know? I want to look cool when I'm up here. That's my whole goal of doing this is to be cool. Um, I'm, did someone say I'm not? Uh, all right, so charismata, charis, grace, free gift, undeserved, which totally in its definition you should recognize this as nothing to do with your personality or something that you've worked towards or even a spiritual discipline. Uh, yeah, Austin. Charis, charis or charismata? Charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. It, it forms the root of, of charismatic, uh, which is uh, not a term. What? Oh, okay. <laughs> which is a term that's thrown around a lot in the Pentecostal settings, I think, if you're charismatic or not. Or in business leadership, it's thrown around a lot too. Charismatic leadership are people who have like an amazing ability to woo a crowd and people are just really amazed by their speaking. Uh, not something that you have to worry about here. So, um, charismata, you know, so charis is just a free gift. Mata just means plural, plural gifts. It's, it simply means gifts and the connotation is gifts from the spirit. God's undeserved gifts that he gives us that come from the spirit manifestations of the spirit 
I actually like to think about it, too, in another way. Mata in the Greek just means eyes, which I have, like, a giant eye staring at me uh, in the back, so that's kind of cool. Um, and, uh, and so Mata means eyes, Charis means grace, and it's, I think, a really cool way of looking at it, although this is not what the Greek word means, okay, is that the Spirit opens our eyes to the gift being from God. It opens our eyes to the fact that the Spirit is expressing himself. One of the biggest issues we have in, um, I think, Christian culture today is we often don't feel or uh, feel like we experience the presence of God in any kind of routine uh, type way. And as millennials, in particular, postmodern folks, they really care a lot about experience, which I'll talk about a little bit, and I think that is pretty exciting for the movement uh, forward of our churches and where they're going and things like that. But we often don't feel like we're really experiencing uh, God, especially apart from some almost miraculous type experience, which tend to be things we forget about, you know, uh, from time to time. The consistent day in, day out expression of, uh, you know, God's indwelling, working in us, testifying to, uh, to um, his, uh, his presence just doesn't happen very often for us. And we really get stuck. And so some Christians move over to this other side, well, you don't need to feel any of it. Just think about it. And as long as you think about it, uh, you know, you'll know he's there, which I think is a little too extreme because at least in the New Testament church, the spirit's presence was felt with pretty regular uh, kind of consistency. And so it's important that we both feel and know and think, but, you know, feeling is kind of tricky and I'm going off on a tangent and we'll come back to this when we get into uh, uh, some of the next sermon series, particularly worshiping in the spirit. We'll talk a lot about emotions, so I don't want to go too far off, but uh, it's important that we recognize that charismata at its root is just spirit manifestation. It's the whole purpose was so the spirit could make clear that God's glory was among us. So charismata. Eyes open to God's working among us, which uh, we pray a lot in our church. God, open our eyes to where you're working. What are you doing? Because we don't know a lot of times. We get going, we do activity. At the end of the week, we wonder, was God in that? Was I in that? What's happening? And yet, what's really cool about the idea of the charismatic gifts is simply that we're supposed to be seeing an expression of God's working among us. Now, what gets tricky is those gifts that have been particularly called extraordinary gifts, apart from those gifts that I think are more routine and regular, and uh, I'll get into that in, uh, in, just a, uh, in just a minute. But let me say one more thing about this charismata and, and these other gifts. I really want to differentiate between, we're going to get that and the fire trucks, right? Cool. I like that. Reminds me of being at home. We have like a train, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's great. Fruits of the Spirit versus, uh, you know, these gifts of the Spirit. Because this is, this is really mixed up a lot. And although there are overlapping ideas, certainly, these are different things. And I want to make clear of that. Fruits of the Spirit are the Spirit's direct work in our heart and in our life to make us more like Christ. These are the ethical, sort of the ethical root of the Spirit's character development us. And those, those are listed. They're, they're encompassing, and they, they, one of the things we talked about probably three or four weeks ago is that the Spirit's fruits are still communally directed. 
the only one on the fruit list that's not others directed is self-control. But even that is going to have some implications for our relationships. And so uh, these are things that along with the disciplines, things that we uh, do on a daily basis, the Spirit is developing us into the person that God wants us to be, uh, which is to say like Christ. But these gifts are something different, okay? As far as I can tell, and I may be just wrong completely, so you're going to have to kind of figure this out on your own. But the gifts themselves are things that are undeserved, meaning that they, there's no real connection to any work or uh, relationship to, to much of, uh, well, I am pursuing this gift, and so I'm going to kind of do X, Y, Z and accomplish those things, as if somehow... Uh, you know, I can just have a 10-step program to developing the gift of administration. <laughs> but these gifts, number one, are very spirit-centric and communally-centric, meaning that they have to do with what the spirit is doing in a community of, of people in terms of the gathering. What needs to be developed? What needs, I mean, in the wider sense, the fruits are good for all times. There's never going to be a time when you shouldn't be practicing gentleness, all right? or faithfulness. But the gifts of the Spirit have a whole lot more to do with church growth in communally doing and, and, and discharging the duties that are necessary in the body at any given time. And so in some sense, they can be a little bit more boring maybe, okay? And I'm talking here about general spiritual gifts here, not the extraordinary ones, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But they have kind of a specific mission behind them. And this is one of the reasons I believe that church has become pretty stiff and boring for a lot of young people. It's because they fail to recognize that the Spirit has absolutely promised us in Christ to gift us when we're together. Now, does that mean this corporate gathering? Probably to some degree, but we gather a lot throughout the week in small groups, in, um, you know, uh, just events, whatever it is. And we often go, and it's like, oh, one more time to talk to people, or to hear the story, or to get information I could have got on Facebook, or for all of us introverts, this is like everyone today, you know, I spent two hours in conversation, I can't ever have a conversation again for a month, because um, it's just it's too taxing, uh, and I had to talk about all these things that I wasn't interested in, you know, and we're so, we have so many preferences that, you know, we have a very small circle of what we find interesting. I'm the same way, I'm not even remotely putting myself outside of that. But what would it look like if we took what the scripture talks about as these spiritual gifts manifesting themselves really pretty spontaneously and for the benefit of the community and regardless of our weakness or personality or strength as we gather together? What does that mean? I know that seems like a really strange idea. Here's partly why it's a strange idea, because at the, the base of our thinking about spirituality, we're still very rationalistic. Rationalistic. You don't need to educate folks, so don't worry about that part. That's what? Yes, because I don't think it's a real word, word actually, so it's just an idiot word from, that I made up. But we tend not to recognize the supernatural things that are, that are going on behind the scenes. And by supernatural, I mean, what does that mean ultimately? Just stuff we can't see, right? 
It's, it's the stuff that, you know, doesn't follow neat patterns of natural this happens and then this happens and everything sort of makes sense to us. But the stuff that we can't see that God is doing behind the scenes. I mean, if, if you, if, if somehow, Leslie did this a couple weeks ago. No, no, Willie did this a couple weeks ago, which is actually a scary analogy, but I'm going to turn it into a better analogy, I think, that's less scary. He said, you know, can you imagine your thoughts right now being put up on the screen? How terrifying that would be. Or let's just say your thoughts now, because most of you would just be like, oh, I'm tired, or I'm bored. <laughs> It'd be very consistent. Uh, uh, but throughout the last week, okay, you just put every thought you had up there, particularly like the spicier ones, you know. Or <laughs> in Parks and Rec, they, uh, remember they take that word puzzle thing and the bigger words, yeah? And then what if the thoughts that you had multiple times are in bigger letters? Oh, man, it's creeping out. I'm getting creeped out. All right? But if you can imagine somehow the things that the Spirit is doing within us that we just simply don't recognize, which have a communal sort of bent to them, just being thrown up on the screen, how amazing and wonderful that would be. How uh, supernatural, how you know, awe-inspiring, how worship-inspiring it would be to just have a quick video of this behind-the-scenes thing that the Spirit is doing in just even two or three of your lives. It would just be amazing, right? Absolutely amazing. But that's exactly what Paul says is happening every time the church gathers. The Spirit's working. And working in ways that, that have really very little to do with you doing anything but receiving an undeserved gift. And I think if we think like that, which it sounds out there, and it sounds kind of like strange for those of us who didn't grow up in uh, an environment, particularly where there were extraordinary things happening that were obvious, for us to really pay attention to those things. But I want to encourage you that because I think that's one of the most important messages that I've gleaned from this is what does it look like to each one of us come to church and really expect the Spirit to manifest himself in these gifts uh, for the blessing of the community whether it is something that uh, I am just terrible at. I loved Leslie's question last week about you look at the one and other commands, and some of them you're like, yeah, I'm good at that. I like that. That, that sounds great. And then the other ones you're like, that's a one and other command? Oh, no. That shouldn't. No, that can't be right. That can't be on the list. Um, what would that actually look like if, if, we, uh, if we understood that and paid attention to it? So let me say a quick word about these extraordinary gifts, and then uh, I'm going to kind of finish up here. The extraordinary gifts, uh, things like prophecy, which I think can be extraordinary or somewhat more mundane. Uh, speaking in tongues or glossolalia, which, you know, we can talk about it just a little bit. Uh, miracles, some of these other things that I think stump a lot of people who... Uh, have that rational mindset? What would it even look like for us uh, to experiencing uh, those things in a corporate gathering? Well, number one, let's be honest, most of us don't expect to see any of that stuff. Or if we do, we're trying to broaden the definition. I've heard people say, well, miracles, that could be someone just changing their mind on something. And you're like, well, no, actually, no, miracles were pretty physical uh, in many times. <laughs> Let's not change the definition of what miracles. Is it a miracle that people change their mind? Sure, but that's part of salvation, that people are going to renew their mind and change it. Let's not call that a miracle. A miracle is someone being healed from an ailment, all right, physically. 
the tongues idea, we won't talk a lot about tongues, but, you know, the idea of glossolalia being kind of a, uh, not really a language, it's like anyone's really speaking another language, that was for Pentecost, but being able to, to utter ecstatic words, uh, words that have no meaning apart from discernment, uh, which, you know, for those of you who grew up in a church that spoke tongues, some of us grew up in church where tongues were said they don't exist anymore, uh, and pulled primarily from Hebrews 2. Um, and, uh, and that's tricky. You know, my, my sort of where I've landed on all of this stuff is uh, all of these things exist and certainly are important aspects of corporate fellowship, but they've kind of grown into about a thousand years of disuse. <laughs> and do we need to work really hard to bring them back? Mm, eh, I don't know. I don't have a good idea. Uh, are they things that Paul saw as ever going away? Absolutely not. And I'm sorry for those of you, you know, coming from the Church of Christ background and the whole cessational thing. It's just not true in my, my looking at Paul's teaching. Paul never thought the gifts would just go away. In fact, he's talking to the Corinthians about saying the, the gifts will only go away when you're done with life. They're going to be here and now and only for your benefit in the corporate gathering. And... Uh, so what does that mean? Does that mean that these things don't exist and aren't important? Certainly we have people who are in our fellowship or we're uh, partners with other people in fellowship who speak in tongues, who have experienced miracles during their corporate gatherings. What are we to say that they're lying, that they're wrong? I'm not going to say that. They're spiritual people. They've experienced those things. And just because I have it doesn't mean that I don't believe uh, they exist. Uh, and, and I think another word is that some of the reasons why this doesn't happen more often in our culture is because we simply would, uh, they wouldn't be an expression of God's ministry to us. We're so much about excusing those things and rationalizing them that perhaps if they did happen, we would have a million reasons why to, you know, counter them. But here's where I'm pretty excited about uh, millennial culture, and that's that we are becoming more and more postmodern and more and more focused on the experience of God. And so it, will there be a resurgence of those miraculous and extraordinary gifts in our corporate fellowship? I believe so. And I believe that's okay. And I think actually there have been small resurgences of those in churches throughout the period between the apostolic time and, and now. But they, happen, they tend to happen much more in a global context. In a couple weeks, uh, two weeks, we're going to start the class on Pentecostalism. And uh, that's on November 5th. And two uh, weeks in particular, we're going to talk about um, Pentecostalism in the black church and Pentecostalism in the global church. And we're going to see just how important some of those experiences of God are to both of those groups. And so maybe in, you know, upper middle class uh, America, those gifts aren't near as important and, uh, and we... Uh, don't focus on them near as much, but are they somehow gone or any less important? I think not. And you can disagree with me. I mean, sure, that's fine. Uh, but I see no sign that, uh, that those extraordinary giftings of the Spirit uh, have gone away. I think we ought to always be very careful about them, though. Because any time extraordinary experiences lead people back to an individual or an individual spirituality, they've already failed in their most basic task which is to build up the community of God and to express a sense of God is among us, something that many of us simply don't experience much anymore. And why is that? Partially because we don't believe in the manifestations of the Spirit. You don't believe, and you're going to 
rationalize it away. Why would God even try to do that among us? And I think that's something we ought to always be open to as a church. And so I'll encourage you, you know, um, to think through that. And as we talk these next couple weeks just some about these controversial issues, guys, you're the future of the church. Many of you are very, very young. You're in your, you know, uh, late teens, early 20s, even mid-20s. The church is changing. It's changing at a rapid pace. We're trying to keep up with that as a, a family of churches. I love this new space because we've got two extra rooms now, one upstairs, which is pretty cool, little mirror dance room, all kinds of weird things you could do in there, and then a back room here, and one of the things I'd like to try in the next probably year is to do multiple services at the same time, but have very different things going on, and maybe one is a dance and, you know, worship, and the other one is more of a kind of a lecture, or the other one is more whatever, guys, we just to try some things that really bring back a sense of God's presence among us. Because it's, it's hard. It's hard to passively sing a lot of songs that you may or may not agree with or like, okay, and listen to some guy drone on about five things that he learned in the last, you know, 30 minutes before church um, and really feel a sense of, of God's presence. Now, is that to say that it's not possible? No, there's work there. And, we, and the idea of feeling it, again, we'll talk about next week. But we want to find ways that the Spirit really is open and willing and able, uh, open and able to, to really manifest Himself in our times together. And what does that mean? And is that it's something as simple as someone, you know, we remember our, uh, how good of a friendship, uh, you know, we have with someone? Absolutely. I mean, that's, those are things that are important. But is there, are there extraordinary ways that the Spirit can work if we will allow Him to? Absolutely. And I think that's the testimony of the New Testament. Um, I'm going to wrap up with that. We're going to move into communion, but I do want to just open up uh, uh, maybe three minutes or four minutes, not too, too long, for questions or thoughts that you have. Maybe uh, that's something that you just want to encourage the, uh, the church in. We've been doing this every week in this sermon series, and it's going to pick up a little bit more the next four or five weeks, again, as we give you a full week of prep to think through a question. And just to remind you, one of the things I think we're really going for in this time of sharing and discernment is uh, really messages for our community. They're not simply messages that, this, you know, activities or experiences that you've had one-on-one -on -one with the, the Spirit or, or a message that you've heard from God, but they're really about trying to kind of speak to the community. And that's hard. I mean, you know, quick example of that in my classes when I ask people what does success look like for you in 10 years, no one doesn't have an answer. They're really quick to have an answer. The funny thing is their answers are all the same which we launch into this whole thing about how are you really individualists and your answers are all the same, but that's a whole other thing. But when I ask him, what's success look like for our nation in the next 10 years? Blank stares, blank faces. There are a lot of people who want to criticize stuff and talk all the time about this is how it should be, but they just don't think societally or globally. We have that same issue, guys, with the church. And if you're particularly young, you might excuse yourself to not think communally about our church, but whether you're here for one day or two days, or for years, you are a part of this corporate fellowship. And you ought to think through communally uh, what God may be saying through you or a group of other people to really challenge uh, where we're at. And we'll discern that. You may have a really wrong perspective. Maybe your perspective is left over from a church you went to when you were a kid. And we're going to say, eh, I don't think your perspective is exactly on board here. Maybe that's a church universal thing we ought to do. Great. But maybe not here so much. And we can discern that, and we can talk about that, and we can figure those things out. But uh, hopefully you'll spend some time in the next four or five weeks really spending uh, you and God just sort of thinking through, asking for uh, him to give you a message.
You know, I think this falls in line really well with what Paul says when he says, desire the greater gift. Well, what made a gift greater? Well, first of all, Paul talks about prophecy all the time. That to him was the greatest gift. But what is prophecy? It's not foretelling the future. <laughs> uh, say it again. That's it. It's just speaking the truth, uh, particularly in a way that opens people's eyes to, their eyes to something they hadn't seen before. Isn't that what the prophets did? They opened their eyes to what God's agenda really was with the law and how they were living it in a very opposite way. And sometimes prophecy is very difficult and challenging. Some of you have had prophets, you know, sort of speak over you. And I think that's fine. But the goal, again, in these commands is speaking communally. So I would, I would challenge you, eagerly desire the greater gifts, the gifts that are really directed at the community of God, particularly in this kind of corporate setting. What does it look like to really desire to be open to allowing the Spirit to work through you in ways that really go against you? Maybe you're quiet. Maybe you're not articulate. Maybe you're whatever, all the different things. that it, That's the whole thing about glorying in the spiritual gifts is that they have to do not with our strength and our personality. It's just simply saying, the Spirit's telling me to do this. And I think some of you got a taste of that when Willie did his little dance um, a couple weeks ago. He just felt like the Spirit. And I know Willie. I know him really well. And you know, all day long, both of us can tell, you know, you about each other's weaknesses. But Willie did that because he felt like the Spirit was leading him to do that. He didn't really want to get up there and dance. I mean, it'd be one thing if he was like a really great dancer. Um, not to say it wasn't wasn't good. I'm just saying it's, you know, one thing if he gets up there and we're all like, yeah, and then he gets all the praise. But, you know, I mean, that wasn't his deal. Or maybe he is a good dancer. But never mind. I'm not going to talk about his dancing anymore. Uh, questions or thoughts uh, for the community? You don't know if it's what? Yeah, well, you know, tongues, number one, are, are really uh, common in every religion. This sort of ecstatic speech that, uh, again, isn't a language. I think some people get mixed up. They think that tongues is like a language. And so, you know, I think there have been some really funny stories of Pentecostals. <laughs> uh, hearing people praise God in their own language and then interpreting that and then the person being like, nope, not even close. <laughs> Glossolalia, which is sort of like its official term, which is like a sweet word, right? Uh, who knows, really? Just kidding. It's like G-L-O-S-S-A-L-A-G-I-A. I just spelled it really fast so that way you have no idea if it's right or wrong. I don't know, just look it up, because I really don't know how to spell that name. Just think glossary. Okay, um, if you'll get the first four letters right, five, and that'll be important. Um, and so I would say that for those of you, some people have asked us from time to time, particularly because of our relationship with uh, UCA, uh, UCF. UCF. Well, I think they call it UCF, right? UCM. God, you're missing acronyms. Um, about what would happen if I felt like I needed to, to uh, you know, speak in tongues. And I think in my mind, in, in terms of our church setting, uh, I would prefer that you always ask if someone has, you know, felt like they have a message that, uh, that they are able to interpret a tongue. Because otherwise it just becomes language and, and uh, nothing. And I think that's what Paul was really getting at, is that people were in a very disorderly fashion just getting up and kind of saying stuff. 
and no one was taking time to discern. No one was making sure that people really had someone to uh, interpret the messages that, that were being given. And my full belief is that if, if God gives us a message through uh, tongues, he's also going to give someone a message to interpret that. Uh, and so that's how I like to, to practice it. Ashley, does that answer your question? Oh, yeah, well, then it, I think the, the point, that can, it could be both. It doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. I think that's what Paul talks about is that it is a sort of a language between you and God. Um, and, uh, you know, and let's remember for a moment that ecstatic forms of healing are common. And so the idea that we would add mixed up language in that and that that somehow automatically means that it's insincere uh you know, isn't true. Plenty of us have had ecstatic, what we would call ecstatic experiences with God, and some of you haven't. And that's, there's no litmus test for spirituality. And that's what Paul makes very clear, is that if you have spoken in tongues, you are not even remotely more spiritual than anybody else. And not only that, but if you mention it as a sign of your authenticity or spirituality, you're actually quite a bit less mature uh, than the rest of the general public. <laughs> um, so uh, I think that's really, really important that, yes, it can be a, a, it is a language that we speak to God. But in a corporate setting, I don't think it makes much sense to speak you and God when no one else can understand it any more than it is to pray a really super personal prayer in the middle of a corporate meeting. The goal is to benefit the community and always is. And I think too many Pentecostals have used it as a badge or mark of spirituality, which Paul would have absolutely uh, fought against that idea, and he did in Corinthians multiple times. Any others? Yeah, Ray. Not, not a language that anybody can interpret or know. It's a language that only God could give them words to, to interpret. What? It's not speaking languages. Speaking tongues isn't speaking a language. No one's going to be around and actually be able to, like, set down, oh, here are the words used in that vocabulary. Let me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just to repeat the idea for the audio, I, uh, you know, the idea that when we, we gather together, we ask God, um, you know, what do you want to do through me for this person? How do you want to gift me to bless and minister to this person? And, and knowing full um, ahead of time that it's usually not going to be, oh, I want you to show your strength. It's usually going to be like, do something that you're actually pretty bad at because this is not the church you may need. <laughs> um, and, uh, or just in general. And I think that, that, that's really an important idea. And remember that, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons one-on-one -on -one relationships, guys, and group settings have become so taxing for us is because we have way too many preferences. And our preferences keep us from connecting with people. We've got so many ways we want to do things and so many interests. And we project, uh, you know, our self-worth or, or we, 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 you know, seek our self-worth and we use other people as a sounding board. So if I like this and this other person likes this back, that means I'm pretty important. And that's why so many of us spend so much time around people who are really, really buddy-buddy with. Uh, but, but, the, but the community of God is so, so different than that. You know, we don't work and other people aren't a sounding board for our 
character or our worth or value. God is always the final say in that. And that releases us and frees us to serve people out of a love and a deep commitment to them, not out of something that we need to get from them, whether approval or whether I feel like I've accomplished something in their life so I can check it off. Uh, you know, I don't think most good parents parent so that they can have a checklist of all the things parents are supposed to do and then be done with that and be like, I was a good parent. You know, they do it out of the love that they have for, for their kids, this sort of self-sacrificing love that only parents often have um, for their kids. And so, uh, yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And I think that's one we ought to draw out a little bit more, but hitting near into our time. So, Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.